I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and you're very welcome to The Tonight Show. Flying into Ireland this Friday? Well, you may be eligible for an all-inclusive stay at one of the government's mandatory quarantine hotels, but it will cost you joining us to discuss how they will operate and if it goes far enough as Fine Gael TD Jennifer Carroll McNeil and People Before Profit TD Paul Murphy. The Vintners Federation seek to remove the €9-euro substantial meal rule and plead to be allowed reopen this summer. We hear from hotelier Noel Cunningham as he calls for clarity ahead of what he hopes will be a busy staycation season. And later, depicted as witches, subjected to sexist abuse online and described sometimes as shrill, bossy, emotional. Is it any wonder women are wary of entering the world of politics? Get in touch on Twitter or hashtag tonight. VMTV. probably here today from 4am this Friday the 26th of March anyone entering Ireland from one of 33 designated high-risk countries will be taken directly from the airport to their pre-booked hotel where they will stay for their 12-day quarantine. This morning the portal for bookings went live with 26 passengers having secured their place. Well joining us for the very latest on this and all of today's top news stories is Zara King of Virgin Media News. Zara we're going to start with the case numbers today 371 cases unfortunately 21 or 24 further deaths the case numbers is more positive but you've been looking at the five-day average which is key Yes, Kerry, I think it's really important because I think for people watching the news every evening, they're sort of seeing more than 700 on Sunday night, more than 500 last night, and then looking at that more than 300 tonight and sort of asking themselves what's actually going on. So I think it's really important for us to take a step back, look at the broader picture, the five-day moving average. Let's just take a look at this here tonight. We can see the five-day moving average today is now 538. Yesterday it was 580. Sunday it was 587. Saturday 503. And Friday 513. So Kira, it's sort of moving somewhere between the kind of 500 and 600 marks. So it gives people a bit of a clearer idea of the type of actual movement as opposed to those jolting up and down in terms of the daily cases. As I say, 371 cases today. Yes, 24 further deaths. Very difficult for the families at the centre of those cases. 12 of those deaths happening this month in the month of March, 10 in February and two of them in January. The people who died in those cases aged from uh, 49 to 100. Now, also just in terms of situation in hospitals tonight, Kira, we are seeing 357 
COVID patients in hospital this evening, of which 76 are in the intensive care unit. Now, uh, earlier today, we heard from the Health Minister, Stephen Donnelly, about some of those enhanced measures that are going to uh, be put in place in terms of preventing uh, further spread of the virus, trying to curtail those numbers. Kira, it was something that Dr Ronan Glynn had hinted about last night uh, here at the NEFA briefing, that there will be further things put in place. Uh, they're calling them enhanced community measures. So among those will be things like walk-in PCR tests that won't require any referral from a GP, that people will be able to walk in, uh, bring their PPS number and some form of identification and be able to have a PCR test on the spot there. Now, uh, this is not something obviously that's going to be rolled out in every community carrier, but it will be put in place in places uh, where there's specific targeted testing, where they know that the virus is circulating. So Stephen Donnelly, I think they're going to specifically target the virus uh, where they know it actually is. So uh, in terms of the locations, we don't know that yet, Kira. but I suppose if we were to look at the geographical breakdown of where the high numbers are at the moment, you're looking at places like Offaly, Longford, Kildare, Meath, Dublin, they've all had the highest rates over the last 14 days, so it's reasonable to expect that we probably will see uh, the first of those walk-in PCR facilities in those counties. And we also got full detail today about how this mandatory hotel quarantine is going to work. What's the reaction been from political opposition? Yeah, I mean, Kira, there has been somewhat of a mixed response to this, even with the public. I'm sure you can see yourself reading online today. Uh, while the vast majority of people have welcomed this, a lot of people have said, why didn't they do this sooner? Uh, why wasn't it happening sooner? And in terms of the political response, uh, we see a lot of political leaders coming out and saying uh, that, look, this needs to be more robust, that there needs to be more countries added to that list. The SOC Dems saying today, uh, yes, it, shouldn't, it should have happened months ago, and they say that the state must have a key uh, role to play in the rollout of that. Also, uh, people before profit team Paul Murphy speaking today, uh, saying these half-baked mandatory hotel quarantine proposals by government are full of holes and seriously expose Ireland to importing more cases of COVID-19 and variants. And again, he points to that idea of there being just a list of 33 countries. He says uh, there should be mandatory hotel quarantine uh, for all incoming travellers. And I believe we're going to hear more from him this evening on the programme. Uh, just as you mentioned at the top of the programme there, so the bookings so far, 26 bookings for that mandatory hotel quarantine, of which six people will check in in March 15 in April and 5 in May. And we heard today about the HSE's safe return to the health service plan. So this was an outline of how the non-COVID side of the health service might become fully operational again. Some concern around cancer services and when they are going to resume fully. Yes, Kira. So, I mean, across the borders in the health service, you have up to around a million people who are on waiting lists for various different treatments across various different sectors. And a lot of those people are sort of in limbo, not knowing when they're going to get an appointment or what exactly is going to happen. When it came to acute emergency cancer services, uh, they did continue, but this will see a further resumption in terms of that. Now, again, uh, the reaction to that being uh, somewhat mixed, Sinn Féin's health spokesperson, David Conlan, saying that uh, if this is going to work, it is going to need more government investment. Um, he is saying today, that it's important that the health service resumes normal levels as quickly as possible. He says the plan for resuming care is welcome, but it is disappointing that it is not accompanied with additional investment from government. And as I say, because there is such a significant backlog here, this is going to be a massive challenge for the health service at a time when they're still very much battling a pandemic. You've got to remember that those COVID numbers in hospital are still very, very high. Last week, Paul Reid describing those levels as not normal. And Dr Anthony uh, Fauci, I don't think he needs a full introduction. He was given an honorary fellowship today by the Royal College of Physicians here in Ireland. He commented on sort of the static nature of our numbers. What were his observations? Yeah, he did actually, Kieran. He's urging us, I suppose, to be cautious in terms of our numbers, particularly as we see this plateauing. Let's just take a listen to what he had to say. 
I don't think that that should cause us to despair, but that that should cause us to be cautious that as we continue to vaccinate more and more people, which will ultimately give us control of the outbreak, we've got to remember we can't just completely turn off all public health measures. All right, we leave it there. But as always, Zara King, thank you for your time this evening and for that all, all that information. Thanks, here. And as you heard there, mandatory hotel quarantine up and running from this Friday at 4 a.m. We're going to go to the vice president of the Garda Representative Association, Brendan O'Connor. Brendan, we understand today that the role of the Garda is to be, you know, minimal. They'll only be called if there's, you know, an issue at the hotel. The defence services are going to be there. There's private security uh, on the ground 24-7. Is that what the Garda have been led to believe? Well, you know, we're relying on, on what's been published in the media so far for our members to, to try and figure out what role we'll have. And the information at hand today does suggest that there won't be a particularly um, hands-on role. But, of course, our members will be part of the process from these people arriving in the country because we do have personnel who are involved in immigration. But I suppose this is a legal obligation. We're the primary law enforcement agency in the state. So when there's a problem, that's when the guards will become involved. And that has been acknowledged. So that's the concern for our members because it's, as the Taoiseach stated yesterday, that the reason the legislation took so long to come into the is because it's a very complex issue. It involves huge um, issues surrounding whether this detention and human uh, rights and, you know, what we're seeing across, and it's, it's not confined to Ireland, is, you know, legislators across the world are bringing in these um, policies and sanctions, but ultimately the people who will have to make decisions and invoke, invoke powers when there is a problem is individual police officers who will be held to account for those decisions. So unfortunately, in Angarda Shikana, we would consider that the organisation has traditionally not placed the emphasis on training that it should have had. So our fear is that, you know, legislation that took weeks to draft, that's extremely complex, that touches on a lot of issues, that's outside of the sphere of normal policing. Who will be making decisions? Will it just be um, two guards on patrol somewhere in the country tomorrow, whether that be Dublin or Wicklow, and told by the control room there's a problem at a hotel and arrive out and have to navigate very, very complex legislation and issues. So we want to see robust protocols in place, proper health and safety equipment, proper training, and, of course, the big issue for our members is vaccines. Again, we see another role for them in relation to the policing of this pandemic, and we find ourselves being probably one of the few, if not only state agencies, particularly those who provide frontline blue light services that do not have the protection of vaccine for our members or for the people that we're dealing with. And how many of your members to date have actually contracted COVID-19? Well, you know, the, the levels of... Unfortunately, I think we've actually just lost Brendan there, but hopefully we'll try and get him back up uh, on the line and get back to him. But for now, I'll go to my panel here, to Jennifer Carroll, McNeil and Paul Murphy. You're both very welcome to the programme. Let's start, I suppose, with um, mandatory hotel quarantine. What is the objective of it, Jennifer? The objective is to provide a really serious deterrent for people coming to this country that you have to have had the PCR test or that you have to spend, you know, what is two weeks in 
you know, not a, not a pleasant situation, a real deprivation of liberty if you're coming from a country where we have significant concerns about variants. Um, so you either have to show that you don't have COVID or that if you're a country at high risk where we just, we, we, we can't rely on that sort of data, you need to quarantine. That's the, that's the point. And that's in response to the really different experience that we're having with the variant, with the B117 variant, um, that has been so much more transmissible. It has required a step change in response. If it is to be a deterrent to people and we're trying to you know, stop further cases of the Brazilian variant, the South African variant, and indeed maybe other variants coming into the country, does it not need to be extended further? Because there's currently 33 countries on the list where we know that variant is in existence, but the World Health Organization only a few days ago said that variant or those variants have been identified in 64 countries. So if we really want to prevent the variant coming in, should it not have been extended? I think, it, I think you may see that. That, that, it, that it becomes extended. We've already seen it started out with 20 countries. It's now 33. It may very well be extended. You saw Stephen Donnelly allude to that this evening, but that's based on NEFIT advice. And NEFIT is very focused on targeting the variants, identifying the variants, targeting that and having a very focused response. So that will be led by NEFIT's analysis of where the issues are. Okay, Paul Murphy, you're shaking your head there vigorously. Because NEFIT has advised in the last few weeks that they think that all countries should be on the list. That instead of a situation where less than 10% of incoming travellers have to mandatory quarantine and 90% get to come in, get to go home and are meant to quarantine at home, but there is no real supervision over that. They recognise that that is the equivalent of, you know, making a great big fanfare of closing the bathroom window while you got the front door open and the back door open. It is it not going to be effective. NEFED, wasn't it, expressed the desire that all passengers, Nef- but at a first instance, that it would be the high-risk countries but that ne- would be put into hotel quarantine. NEFED have been consistent, and this goes back to May of last year, and it's in official communications and in official minutes from NEFED to the government. But of course, the government has repeatedly ignored the public health advice. That is what has happened. That's why we're in the disaster that we're in now, that we've been in five months of lockdown with a break for three weeks to allow pubs and restaurants to open and which is responsible for the deaths of a thousand people in January, a thousand people in February. And with the government's strategy, basically an indefinite lockdown until we achieve vaccination. And a big problem here is that they're not, they want to be seen to do something about incoming travellers but they're turning a blind eye to 90% of incoming travellers. If you're on a plane with someone coming from a country which does have variants and so on, you're also allowed to just go in based on where you're coming from. It doesn't make any sense. It's completely inadequate. Jennifer, you're paying lip service to this idea of trying to control the borders. On Nefesh, um, the advice... For as, as long as this government has been in existence, we have been following what Neffet has said in relation to this. There is a proportionality of involved here. If you look back at how our case numbers were, say last July, last August, introducing this sort of measure where we didn't have any new variant at that point would have been a disproportionate response. It's a very, very big step for Ireland to take. It's the first time we've ever done anything like this. And within the context of, e, of the EU movement, residents returning home and so on, it is a very big step. The, the existence of the, the new variant has changed everything and this is a response to that. So I just, I don't agree and you have to be careful so about I'll, where you're I'll saying. give you. I'll give you some, here's a letter from Neffet of the 4th of August. Neffet has previously recommended mandatory quarantine for all passengers travelling to Ireland from overseas. That's advice that you didn't follow. Here's advice from the 21st of December. My considered view is we need level five now. Level five are necessary. It took 10 days to do it. If you go back okay. to November, you're, it you're... says, so So the government don't tell inaccurate statements, right? The, the government has repeatedly 
departed from Neffet advice. It has repeatedly. And the consequence is people have died and we're in an indefinite lockdown. And you don't repeat the line of Stephen Donnelly that is not accurate. Well, we, we follow Neffet. They don't follow Neffet. It's, it's written down every single time you look at the Neffet letters. You throw them out the window because you allow business lobbying to get in the way. Oh, that's just, not, like, that's just not true. Just, well, okay, why did that's you just not true. That's not why true. That's just not true. That's not true. There is, there, there is, there is a balance. The government has been working with Neffet and, and, looking at their advice and trying to work no, out... You the said they excuse, follow the advice. Sorry. You said they follow the advice excuse just me, a minute sorry. ago, Jennifer. Excuse me. And working to try and get the best outcomes overall between p- public health, mental health, keeping the country going. It's not subject to business lobbying or anything close to it. Your policy... But you don't follow excuse the advice. Excuse me. Your policy, you. your policy is zero COVID. Correct. A policy which, which we know would keep people in lockdown right until autumn, until September, which, and we still wouldn't achieve. Okay, we still Jennifer, achieve can we just zero COVID. go back to that issue, though, that Neffet, if we are following Neffet's advice, Neffet said back in August of last year, this should apply to all non-essential travellers coming into the country. This government is working with Neffet and is, is applying, you know, I'm, I'm not in the decision-making room. I'm not there in the cabinet room or in the in the, the cabinet subcommittee with Neffet. So what I can tell you is is, is is what I'm being told as well. This government is taking the advice from Neffet. If Tony Holohan or Neffet come along with an additional list of countries, that is what we that, that they will be added to it. But their focus is targeting the variants. They were the ones who advised, please don't come home for Christmas. We didn't know about the, the variant at that point. We are following and working with them. If they say more countries, there will be more countries. But we have the WHO here saying this variant yes. is in 64 countries, but we have 33 on the list. Yes, and that's fair. And that means that Neffet will be, I imagine, reflecting on that and taking their lead from that and reflecting that back to the government. And if, having done that, they say add more countries, then that's what I expect will happen. OK, I just want to go back to um, Brandon there. I think he's back up in the line uh, in terms of, uh, Brandon, I think we'll just go back to the point that we were making about the number of your members who have actually contracted COVID-19. Do you have those figures? Well, we, we, those, those figures are obviously changing. We don't have a cumulative table, but what I would say is that the number of members absent would generally reflect the population. So um, in the start of January and when we saw the outcome for Christmas, we saw that wave, we saw huge absenteeism rates and we were down to the low 80s. So thankfully, we're back up in the mid 90s, or sorry, the high 90s. So we're not, we're not experiencing a lot of absenteeism at the moment. But again, this ties in with what we asked about vaccination. If the country is hit with another wave, which some commentators would suggest is a possibility, we're going to see those absences. And yet society is reliant on our members and the government plan is very much reliant on our members being part of the fight to suppress the virus. So it it just seems nonsensical that this primary state agency or one of the primary state agencies that the personnel aren't actually going to be prioritised for vaccination to use them to their maximum effect. And in fact, we would say there's a danger of us being vectors. As I say, we are maybe going to anywhere where people are engaging in high-risk behaviour, whether that be people breaching the rules or people in the quarantine scenario, which we'll have from this week, and then going about their ordinary police and duties interacting with the public. It just doesn't make sense. And obviously one of the other roles that the Guardi are meant to have is ensuring that people stay at home and observe the 14-day mandatory quarantine in their home if they have been outside uh, of the country do we know how many times Gardy have had to call to people's homes at this point to ensure that they are abiding by the rules? We don't have those figures at hand, but anecdotally, the feedback we're getting to members of our executive who are feeding them into the association is that those calls are coming more with more frequency. And again, it raises the same issue. We have 
routine patrols, community policing patrols being directed by a control room to go and attend to those issues. So we have a situation where Gardaí are interacting with the community, going to places where there's a high risk and then going back to normal duties. We would think it's much more ideal that we would have properly trained specific units carrying out that function okay. that would have a facility, the proper PPE and be able to return and decontaminate and change uniforms. We believe that there's a better way of dealing with the situation, that the current system is perhaps not ideal and is again adding to the risk, and I emphasise okay. the risk to members of Garrison O'Connor. All right, we'll leave it there. But Brandon O'Connor from the GRA, thank you for speaking to us. Jennifer, let's just go to the first point he was making, which is they are the only sort of frontline workers at this stage who haven't been prioritised in the vaccination list and they are now going to be coming into contact with people coming from high-risk countries. Uh, countries and potentially, you know, uh, situations of conflict, should the Guardian not be prioritised at this stage? Um, I just to, to follow up on what he said, I think the Secretary General said today that they've called to houses in about in close to a thousand cases, you know, so just to get a sense of the scale of it. And they are the, the, the frontline workers that, that, that haven't been that haven't been included yet so far. I know that they've met with the Minister for Justice last week. I know she has said she would be making the case to government, but ultimately this is a NIAC decision, you know, the the, the Advisory Committee on Immunisations. Um, what is your own personal feeling? I know they did say they met with the Minister, but I think yeah. in fairness, the AGSA said it was a deeply unsatisfactory meeting because they got no reassurance uh, from the Minister. And I know that's not the Minister's job. She can't put them on the list. But what is your own feeling? I think what you need to do is a Assess, you know, how close the contact is and really risk assess that in, in, a, in, a, in a real way. You know, you've seen the Guardi out and about, you've seen them out on the streets or stopping people and that's quite a distanced uh, experience. So when are you going to come into close contact? It can absolutely happen with the Guardi because that's part of their job. But my question would be, how often is that happening um, and what's, what's the risk involved there? And I would be making the case on, on, the, on the basis of that rather than a simply a blanket analysis of it because the other people who are looking for that prioritisation with NIAC are people with serious long term illnesses who, who, for whom contracting it is a more likely risk of severe illness or death. So that's the balance. Uh, in terms of how the hotel quarantine is going to operate, have you any concerns, Paul? Well, I, th I think there is a big problem with the massive outsourcing that is involved. We raised this and opposed it at the time of the legislation. It's through a private hotel uh, company. Uh, that proved to be a significant issue in Australia, particularly in Victoria where you had um, workers, for example, working there, but also in other places, um, and it proved to be a vector of, of transmission. So I think all oh, the whole thing should be done by the HSC no, under the direction of fairness, the HSC. A member of the Defence Forces is going to be there as sort of a it, state liaison sure. Uh, officer. Sure, but it's, it's, it's not good enough. I, I want to return to one but point about, about, about can I just, can I make the point, because a, a point was made about zero COVID being more lockdown, right? This, it, it is incredible that the government can still claim when we're five months into a lockdown, that zero COVID somehow equals more lockdown. It doesn't. It equals effective lockdown. Okay. So it means let's deal with the situation in the meat plants where half the meat plants have open outbreaks right now and we don't have sick pay. It means dealing with a situation where twice as many workers are forced to go to work okay. right now who aren't allowed to work from home right, and just, there is no state to, agency I with inspections. Suppose, uh, stay on the issue of, of hotel quarantine. I know you're saying it should apply to all passengers coming into the country. What would you do about passengers who are coming into Belfast? what we do in terms of a zero COVID policy. So at the moment, we, we're in favour of restrictions in terms of county travel, right? And that would also apply, apply in the north. Um, and so the, the border counties would be treated as other counties. And so you don't have travel 
country, county to county. That's, think, that's the case. Do you actually genuinely think, Paul, that would be feasible that if somebody in Dublin wanted to book a flight going out of Belfast Airport to they, Palma, they, I think they, there was one leaving today, but, that they would absolutely automatically be stopped from travelling outside the country? But then they have to Indeed. quarantine if they come back in, no matter which country that they that they have tra- travelled. You know, if they've travelled out of Belfast, they still have to quarantine when they come back. You know, that just, absolutely just, has to be just done. Just to dial it down a bit, this is actually accounted for. There is a liaison between the border management here and in, in Belfast. And you're actually obliged if you do fly into Belfast and come into this 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 part of the island that you present yourself to a hotel quarantine within four hours. And if you do not do that, the guardy can go and escort you to hotel quarantine. So that's, that is also there. But you know, this issue of it being, it should all be done by the state and private hotels are bad. You know, you and I obviously have a different view on the role of private enterprise in, in society. I don't see it as a bad thing. What you need is something that's able to deliver it quickly in a cost-effective way and oh. having gone through an open procurement process. I just don't see anything wrong with that. All right, my thanks to Peoples Before Profits TD, uh, Paul Murphy, Jennifer Carl McNeil is going to be staying with us and after the break. Will the nine euro substantial meal be a distant memory? Will the pubs ever get to reopen again? Well, they will if the vintners have their way. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're very welcome back. We're now joined by Patrick Cribben, Chief Executive of the Vintners Federation of Ireland, and Jennifer Carl McNeil has stayed with us. Uh, Patrick, to go to you first. You were up in front of the Tourism Committee today uh, at the Oireachtas, pleading your case. Did you feel you achieved anything? Well, Kira, uh, we certainly put our case forward. Uh, most of our members have now been closed for over 12 months, uh, and uh, looking as if they'll be closed for another three months. And there are two commodities that are in scarce supply in our sector at the minute. One is hope and the other is cash. And if it were to deal with the hope first, I mean, what we really need to see next week from the Taoiseach when he delivers uh, his plan for the future is a roadmap. And by a roadmap, I don't mean dates. I mean, we need to see the conditions under which the sector can open again. Uh, we need to have the what level of vaccination, uh, what level of uh, infection, uh, what, what level does that need to be at so that we can safely open? And we also need a clear statement that 
we will not go back, get back into the nonsense that we had in 2020 of this divide between food and non-food pubs, which is scientifically has no basis and pract practically has led to significant division and, and stress among our members. So we need that next week just for the actual hope, to give hope back to a sector. And side by side with that, you know, government have put supports in place. Those supports have been beneficial, but they're totally inadequate. I mean, right now, if you look at uh, the, the average publican going to bed tonight or getting up tomorrow morning, the, the, of the supports that are there, okay, there's a, there's a waiver on commercial rates, but there's no commercial activity. Uh, there is the CRSS, and the average CRSS to a publican, as per the revenue figures, is 560 euros. Now, out of that 560 euros, they've got to pay insurance, they've got to pay business mortgage, they've got to pay energy, they've got to pay water rates, and a lot of that stuff goes back to government anyway. So that is inadequate, and we need to see that cranked up immediately so that those businesses are there when we can reopen safely. In terms of the hope side of this, what impact does being closed for 12 months, potentially another three months, but no real certainty as to when or how you're going to be able to reopen, what impact is that having on your members? It's mind-wrecking. It's not just our members. Bear in mind there are about 7,000 publicans around the country. There's about 50,000 employees. There are musicians whose livelihood depends on, on the pubs. There are comedians who actually use the pubs as venues. There are refrigeration experts who keep the refrigeration going in pubs. It's, it's endless the number of people that are involved. But for the publicans themselves, bear in mind that publicans, by their nature, they're social animals. You know, they're, they're always in the thick of things with their customers and within the community. They're cut away from that on the one hand. And on the other hand, they have all of the severe financial pressures bearing down on them. Uh, it's, 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 it's unbearable in a lot of cases at this point. Um, Jennifer, at this stage, you can hear the frustration, I suppose, that uh, Podrick is speaking about there that a lot of your members are feeling. And I think the wider community is feeling now this sort of sense that there is no plan, that we don't know what it is that we're aiming for. There are no targets bar this 80% vaccination for June, but we don't know what the bonus is. We don't know how that's going to impact our lives or allow us to reopen. Is the government going to be in a position next week to set out some sort of a timeline, some sort of a roadmap with maybe not dates, but data yeah. as Podrick? And the data is what people are looking for. And it's what people are looking for even around reopening now. And you know, you heard Nefit and you heard the government say, look, it's about the numbers in hospitals. It's about the trends. And we saw that, you know, from Zara's analysis earlier, that wasn't that great. The vaccination schedule, were we on or not? And that's the sort of data that you're looking for with numbers attached to it for later. But the big unknown with that, and we talked about it earlier, is the variance and the existence or the possibility of an existence of a variant which we which we don't which may not even exist yet at this at this point. So it is very difficult. But the variant aside, you could you I do believe that you can put better numbers beside the other things that give measure people a measure of predictability with the variant caveat. But there's no question. I mean, I listened to the contributions at the tourism um, committee today. The sector has been hit harder than anywhere else because they've had no capacity to trade, unlike other sorts of businesses. Back as far as February, I was calling for an extension to the employment subsidy scheme to give certainty to businesses on that, to extend the 9% uh, to the hospitality industry. I'm pleased that Pascal O'Donoghue did that, but we need to see that again. And, you know, I really, you know, just on a practical level, 
the, 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 the cash that is needed to reopen, to rehire people who have gone and taken jobs in other industries, to stock fridges. These are practical concerns and government is going to have to acknowledge this and address this directly. The distinction that Padraig referred to between wet pubs and food serving pubs, yeah. you know, serving the nine-year-old meal and not serving the nine-year-old meal and whether that allowed you to open or close your doors. Are those restrictions going to be removed? Do you know, it's interesting. I, 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 I totally accept the frustration that people had with that analysis and that where did it come from? Actually, in the COVID committee, we went into it in great detail with behavioural scientists. And what we were being told was people just behaved in a different way when they were attached to their table and eating. And that that was the logic around how they moved around the pubs. And I know that, you know, it's, it's nearly become, uh, you know, nearly become slightly ridiculous, the, the, nine, the nine euro burger or whatever it happens to be. But there was an element, a strong element of behavioural science behind that. We did hear that in the COVID committee. I don't know what the approach is going to be. I can completely see how frustrating that is. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I just want to go to uh, Noel Cunningham, who is there on Skype for us this evening, because hoteliers have also been seeking clarity as we approach the summer season. He's, of course, the ambassador for Harvey's Point, and to give him his full title, Donegal Person of the Year as well. Noel Cunningham, I know you've been seeking clarity. I think you agree with Podrick. Look, you're not looking for definite dates, but you need some sort of plan at this stage, because the prospect of not opening this summer, what is that like? Well, I mean, the prospect of not opening that summer, this summer, it's a non-runner. We won't accept that. We will not sit back and say, that's OK, we accept that. There has to be a way out of this. And we're not looking. We are fully aware that we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're aware there are new variants. However, an indicator at sort of the worst case scenario, a slightly better scenario, or what if the numbers sort of still drop and stabilize further? When can we expect to open? Remember, we would have thought at this stage that sort of come Easter, we were sort of almost preparing to open sort of mid to late April, uh, early May. Now we might be talking about as late as June, the last week in June, early July, which is heartbreaking. And people talk about hope. It's not just the hoteliers, the restaurateurs, the bar owners, the catering outlets. We are also talking about the people, the community. They need a little indication that they will be able to travel, that they will be able to holiday at home, that they will get away from this terrible prison that they've had to endure for several months. And really, perhaps a good indicator at this point, no more than Podrick was saying, is that the government would come out and say, look, VAT will be frozen at 9% for the next couple of years. We're not talking about a few weeks or a month. We need it for a good few years to get back on our feet. We need grants allocated for reopening and for reopening businesses that have, haven't taken a penny in over a year. We also need to make sure that the wage subsidy is continued because our industry, as Jennifer was saying, is decimated. And it's that lack of hope. We now wake up in the morning. I drove up to Harvey's Point. I was talking to uh, Niall, the general manager, and they've done such a lot of work. Uh, Board Fodge have done such a lot of work because of this Safe Ireland initiative. All the staff, Niall was saying, at Harvey's Point, who were trained, will more than likely be retrained. We were open last year under lockdown situations, and we were doing everything to perfection. You are dealing with professional people who will do things right. We just need 
hope. I drive through the gates of Harvey's Point and the gardens that we spent weeks planting with spring bulbs and tulips and daffodils. They're looking fabulous oh, I'm and sure, not Noel. a soul to enjoy it. I can picture it. It's, I'm sure it's it's looking it's lovely. Um, I just want to put something to um, Podrick here because I did hear the Taoiseach saying uh, in an interview on Monday, I think on, on um, with Brian Dobson, he spoke a lot about outdoors. People's focus needs to be outdoors, that the risk is much lesser outdoors. And I thought, is this what we're moving towards, an outdoor summer? Does that work for your members? Uh, I don't know who's going to supply the roof. Uh, because, you know, in, in, in this country, first of all, about 20% of the combined pubs and restaurants in the country have outdoor facilities. Uh, a lot of them are landlocked. And even for those that have outdoor facilities uh, and not being facetious, in this country in the month of July, you're as likely to get a shower of hailstones as you are to get sunshine. Indeed, you could get both on the one day. So outdoor is not the answer because, first of all, uh, it, it's not viable. Uh, you're going to be restricted in numbers. Uh, and if you look at last year, we had this concept of 15 outdoor, irrespective of whether you had 10 acres outdoor or 10 square metres. Uh, if it's to be outdoor, it certainly has to be related to the capacity to do things safely. But it's just not viable uh, in, in, in an Irish context. We're not dealing with Spain or Portugal or Greece here. Jennifer, how realistic is it, do you think, for Podrick and his members, for all of the hoteliers out there, for Harvey's Point, to start planning towards uh, summer reopening? Um, I know it's a $64 million question, but we do know that the government's plan is to have 80% of adults vaccinated by the end of June. Yes, but I also know that people are legitimately frustrated with people like me promising things that then can't happen. And, you know, I just don't want to get into that category. It's not, it's not honest and it's not fair. But where's the um, middle ground, I suppose, between providing hope for people and providing clarity for people and then not, I suppose, as you say, disappointing people? Look, the real hope, as we know, is in the vaccination schedule. Um, we have had difficulties with that. We have had supply difficulties with that. I would like to be further ahead with that than where we are. But I suppose in terms of hope, like I booked a summer for the summer, I booked a week away, you know, that in was Ireland. my, yeah, in Ireland, that was my my, my personal sort of bet and, and hope, you know what I mean? And, and I wouldn't, I'd be fairly conservative on all of these things. I wouldn't have done that if I didn't think there was a fairly realistic chance that I would get to go. I hope I will be going um, and I'll be going over to Ranville and, you know, and I hope that everybody else will too. But so it's, it's, that's what I did. The real question, though, is this. If 80% of the adult population is vac vaccinated by the end of June, first vaccination, that means that 80% by the end of July are fully vaccinated. Where is the bonus from the vaccination? Because at 80%, uh, and getting close then to 90%, if we can't open relatively normally, where is the bonus? Where, what is the benefit of all of the talk we've had about vaccination? Has it just been empty talk? No, it's not, but, it's not empty talk, but it's about making sure that we do actually get there and that there isn't a variant that disrupts that that we don't know about right. now. But you're absolutely correct. We're going to have to leave it there. But my thanks to Padraig Cribben, Jennifer Carl McNeil will be staying with us. And my thanks also to Noel Cunningham. And after the break, we're going to be discussing the characterisation of women in Irish politics. Welcome back.
Well, over the weekend, a cartoon depicting Sinn Féin leader Mary Lou Macdonald as a witch appeared in the Sunday Independent, sparking debate about the image of women in politics. We reached out to the Sunday Independent for comment. They said they had no comment to make, but they referred us to a recent editorial on the online abuse of politicians in general and how it is completely unacceptable. Well, joining me now to discuss this further is political correspondent for the Irish Mirror, Kira Phelan, and TD Jennifer Carroll McNeil is still with us. I want to start with you, Kira. Thank you for joining us. Just explain me. to me why it is that depicting a politician, a female politician, as a witch in particular, is so offensive. I think this really rubbed people up the wrong way because what do you think of when you see an image of a witch? Children dress up as a, um, as a witch at Halloween. It's evil. Um, they're normally not attractive and they're normally seen as another word, an exclusive word that rhymes at witch. Um, so I just think that it just gave off this sense that it was an ugly image of Mary Lou MacDonald and people just had enough and, and weren't willing to accept it anymore because women in politics um, are torn apart consistently these days on social media over their appearance. So I just think that the witch image in particular had rubbed people up the wrong way. And just to, to, I suppose, not defend the piece, but maybe to put it into context, some would say, look, it fitted the narrative of the piece that was written alongside it, which was that Sinn Féin is engaged in a witch hunt against Leo Varadkar. That was the whole kind of context of the, the piece. This was a witch hunt, and that's why they chose to picture as a witch. But you you can, don't accept you, that. No, I don't, because I, like, I, write an, I can write, a, I write a, an opinion piece, and I can just use my words to get my point across. I don't need to use a cartoon character. Or, or a caricature. I don't. I don't accept that. I don't think there's a need for, for the image at all. I just think the art, the the piece should maybe speak for itself, and people can make up their own minds. And um, Jennifer, you actually tweeted about this and said, "Look, you don't agree with politics, but you don't agree with any woman in politics being depicted like this." Do you feel that as a woman in politics, it has been more difficult for you because of your gender? Have you had experience of that? I have. I have, and I try not to talk about it because I want to be a woman who is working in politics successfully rather than focusing on that. Um, but it would be dishonest of me to say that I don't get it as well. Even, you know, look at that situation. I, I tweeted something about Mary Lou, about how I didn't think it was right because, well, I don't like to interfere in satire. It's not right to portray people like that, which is our outside society. It's okay to persecute them. We have a significant imbalance in our representative chamber. It's not representative of our society. We have too few women and we always have had. And while and do you I you actually think as the National um, Council for Women came out and said this is a deterrent for women coming into politics. To be do you think a depiction like that to actually be honest, deters I somebody? do. To be honest, I do. And I think that that plus what we know about the abuse that women politicians get, um, I, I do think it's a deterrent because you know, people might look at it and go, well, is it worth it? What's the point? You know, am I, is that what I'm going to get if I go knocking on doors or if I go putting myself out there? It's interesting, even when I tweeted that, the amount of, of reaction and abuse that I got back with, from different perspectives, but just the volume of it. And look at that. You've got one woman who's been depicted in a way that really shouldn't have happened. Another woman who disagrees with her politically going, you know what, that shouldn't have happened. And both of them get 
piled on with abuse. People looking at that go, well, you know, what's the point? And what specific abuse have you received that you feel is based on your gender as opposed to your politics? Well, you know, what, I, you know what, I'm so reluctant to talk about it because I, because I don't want to be seen in that way. I want to be somebody who's simply working in politics and who does a good job for a constituents and even has the opportunity of getting re-elected. For me to folk to step away from the policy things that I'm capable of talking about, my, my experience with legislation, my understanding of the constitution, all of those things that I'm really, you know, good at and spend my time talking about being a woman in politics and how difficult that is, it undermines the purpose of my being there and the value of my being there, which is my contribution from my brain, you know, not what I look like or, or what I'm experiencing. But I don't want to be pulling up that ladder, which is, you know, behind anybody else. Or, or say, it, it, part of that is being honest about the impact that it has. It does have an impact. It just does. I suppose but you do it anyway. You it, get on with it anyway. You what know? I'm trying to establish is whether or not there is specific abuse to women in politics that men don't experience. Because I spent some time uh, on social media today and put it you know, the names of some well-known politicians who are in the media a lot, Stephen Donnelly, for example, and um, perhaps Simon Harris, perhaps Leo Varadkar, and the abuse, mm -hmm. the vitriol that was being spewed against them online was also at times, you know, vitriolic and quite disgusting. What I'm trying to identify is, is it as a woman, is it different? It is. I'll tell you why, because it's got to do with your appearance and how you look and how you sound and what you wear. It's absolutely disgusting that the likes of Stephen Donnelly has had to, you know, had a, a guardian intervention with, with um, a fence around his house, which he has spoken about. We've often seen comments of homophobic nature towards uh, Tánis Dili or Varadkar. But it's never about their appearance. And just w one other issue in particular, uh, Deputy First Minister of Northern Ireland, Michelle O'Neill, had a piece in the Irish Times today um, with a, a conversation with Jen Hogan. And she spoke about, you know, becoming a mother at 16, but she made the point as we have moved on a little bit. However, she is criticised every day about the shape of her eyebrows, what she wears, how she sounds. You know, so yes, it is completely different for women. And, and you know, it's, it's unfortunate. And I understand your point, Jennifer, where you're coming from to say you don't want to be, you know, the female politician that's consistently standing up to say it's wrong. You don't want to stand there and be named the whinger then because that's what that's the reaction you would get on social media and it's unfortunate that we do have some female TDs that say you know I'll I'll touch on it but I don't want to go into too much detail because I don't constantly want to be on as the female TD defending you know criticism. Have you had to experience it as a female political correspondent who's working in and around Leinster House on a, on a you know daily basis? No, I, I'm not in Leinster House, definitely not. Um, which is it's it's great to say. However, prior to my um, promotion as a political correspondent, I did receive it as a, a female um, journalist. Um, like we all get DMs, and luckily for myself or for Jennifer and and for for other women it's water off a duck's back. Mm. Um, however, I remember, I recall writing a column and I said, you know, um, there was a, an all-male panel on uh, at the Sunday game one evening and I just wrote a piece about saying, where are the women? I got handwritten letters from men into the Irish Mayor offices saying to me, what would I know about GAA? What would women know about GAA? Because they could never possibly understand the physicality yes. of the sport. But I'm just wondering are there people watching tonight going, but sure that you'll always get a couple of people. But you you see, know, it's, it's more like than that. that. Though, just but it. it's more than that. It's more than that. And if you if you if you saw some of the messages, if you saw some of the direct messages to so some of the tweets, you know, it's I, I I don't want to say it doesn't have an impact. 
it does have an impact and it isn't water off a duck's back because to say that minimizes it, I think, in some of the ways that we, you know, we talk about gender in other ways and, and, the, and the violence that women experience in other ways. And, and this is this is a form of it. And I'm so reluctant to talk about it because I don't want to, I don't, you know, I'd, I'd much rather other people talking about it. But, you know, just here tonight, it is a deterrent to other women coming into politics. It is a silencer for those women who are in politics, in addition to coping with all of the appearance stuff and that sort of analysis, which is ridiculous. But and doing your job, you then have this additional stuff coming in. And whether it's through social media or your emails, it's constant. And if you see it, your staff are impacted by it. Even your family start to pick it up. And it is, it, it, it's it's not a price that you need to pay for being somebody who has been, let's face it, elected to Dáil Éireann oh, by, by people. It's it. ridiculous. Just very briefly, Kier, what could be done? If it's social media, if it's journalism, if it's other politicians? Like uh, we we could sit here and talk about it for hours, and you know the program for government uh, did say that we need a digital safety officer. That and you know we uh, politicians consist consistently talk about you know social media pl platforms need do to do more. Um, but I think you know Tanish to Leo Varadkar coming out and being so strong about the the cartoon on about Mary Lou today really helps yeah, as well. He called it sexist and said and said he was surprised that it was published. So we we do need to see more of um, that. more of that. Yeah. All right, uh, we've run out of time. We're going to have to leave it there. My thanks to all of my guests this evening. Your next news bulletin will be tomorrow morning on Ireland AM. Good night. Stay safe. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.